Hello, hello, and welcome to My Tennis Journey, where we aim to bring compelling tennis stories to life. As you're listening today, it'd be amazing if you could hit subscribe or follow. It's free, you know. As regular listeners to My Tennis Journey will know, my actual tennis journey has increasingly become the role of a parent rather than a coach. And as such, a number of the My Tennis Journey episodes have focused on sports parenting and the challenges and tips that can help parents navigate the choppy waters that is junior performance sport. With that in mind, I'm very excited about today's episode. Excited because over the past couple of months, I've read what I believe to be a brilliant book on sports parenting. It's called Sports Performance Parenting, and it's a collaboration between British Gymnastics and the organisation working with parents in sport. It's great that British Gymnastics have published this book because there's wisdom in here for parents of every sport. Today, I'm joined by the founder of Working With Parents in Sport, Gordon McClelland, who is also the co-author of the book, and Alex McGregor, who is the head of the Performance Pathway at British Gymnastics. So welcome to the show, Gordon and Alex. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Hey, it's an absolute pleasure. You know, I genuinely can't wait to get stuck in and be talking um, about all things sports parenting. You know, as somebody who goes to uh, competitions on a weekly basis, I know that I'm not alone when I say, you know, that being a sports parent can be amazing, but it can also be really, really challenging. So I'm looking forward to our chat. Um, As a starter, I'd like to delve into a question which is actually quite late in the book. And that question is, why do children play sport? You know, it seems like as good a place as any to start. Gordon, in your experience, why do children play sport? And then perhaps, Alex, you can tell us why children take up gymnastics. Well, I think, Rob, I guess the direction I go with this is the reason people play. Everybody's going to have a different response to that. And, uh, And particularly in the world today, you hear lots of people who who um, say that everybody should think the same way or want to do the things for for a particular reason, which just isn't isn't the case. We found that with the work that we've done. The reality is when you ask kids why they do sport, they'll say because it's fun. Um, The challenge comes in, well, what does that mean? Because what might be fun for you might not be fun for me. and I also think in performance sport as well, it's a, it's a difficult message sometimes to land because fun can also sometimes just sound a little bit happy clappy and a little bit flaky. I, I've gone a, I've gone away from fun because the reality is some of it isn't fun. Uh, and and I always joke, you know, you think back to pre-season training when you were younger and throwing up, going up and down. Well, I don't remember that being fun. But I do remember sort of enjoying the fact I got through it and then being able to perform. So I've started with our work, looking at it more that, you know, 
do they enjoy what they're doing? Why are they enjoying it? The fact that with enjoyment, you can enjoy a struggle, but you can also enjoy the good bits. Now, the woman who did the research, Amanda Visek, she didn't really help us as sports parents because she came up with 81 different definitions of fun um, when they asked the kids. Now, that ranged from eating hot dogs with your mates, positive coach relationships, winning, being in a competition, getting given new kit at the beginning of each year. What is interesting, and I struggle to get my head around this, but I've been institutionalised by sport and as a sports parent, is when the adults were taken away, the kids put winning at 48th and being in a competition at 60th when they were asked to rank it. Now, I, I struggle with that. I don't get it. It was certainly a top five answer as to why I put my kids in was winning and competition, but I was brought up in that way. So what I say to parents now is this, you've got to know at every stage of the journey why what your kids are enjoying the most and what is motivating them at that point in time because their response to those questions will change depending on the age, the stage they go through. But it's got to be a, an aligned thought. So, you know, when your kids are struggling with, with aspects of it, you know what it is that's motivating them and it's not your motivation. So I think it's the alignment of, of what that looks like is key. Yeah, it's a great answer. It's a great answer, and it sets us up nicely for a lot of the topics which we're going to come on to. But, but Alex, why do why do children take up gymnastics? Yeah, well, firstly, I think a lot of it's probably quite similar to to Gordon said, but we have some differences. Um, the first thing I think the fun question is really really interesting. Um, I'm quite a big fan of using the word fun for probably all the reasons that Gordon just said that that he wasn't. But I think the sentiment is the same in that um, what's fun to one person might not be fun to another. Now, I, I work in gymnastics now, but I've worked in many different sports. And I know when I was working closely in triathlon with this this picture of Alistair and Johnny Brownlee, who, who you might know if you follow triathlon a bit, and um, them splashing through the mud on a run on New Year's Day. And that was how they chose to spend their time going on this huge run across the moors on New Year's Day because it was fun. Um, it might not be fun to everyone, but I think that's the key that gymnastics specifically probably gets a bit more unique. And what's unique about it, it's... it's often the default entry sport for many, many kids, whether that's starting at kind of tumble tots at two and a half, whether it's four or five years old and they get into school. So so many engage with um, the sport of gymnastics at a really young age. So therefore we've got a bit of um, fundamental movement skills. A lot of parents, particularly now, are probably quite conscious of that and we'll, we'll bring them into it. We've also, we, we fit in really nicely with, with all the other classes that are available to um, parents for young children. You know, they'll send them along because it's a good thing to do, maybe in the same way that you might learn to swim. So we definitely have that why, why people start engaging with the sport in the first place, which is maybe um, different to, uh, you know, a tennis, but certainly a, a, a rugby or, or a cricket, for example. Um, the... The other thing that we then have, uh, I think what pe keeps people engaged is they like flipping and twisting. You know, it's, it is a fun. <laughs> if there's a sport that you can describe as fun, it tends to be gymnastics. Um, it, 
so so that's what we tend to get kids just enjoy that feeling of that that motion and that and that's a really good good start point for why they would then engage with it in the first place but then why they they kind of um fall in love with it and, and take it on further you know i love this like the different definitions of fun the fact that there was 81 definitions of what fun could be and you know i i look into tennis and i look at it and i think yeah you know the children they start out they're having fun there's no pressure on them and actually it's when they go into this more performance arena that suddenly the areas that gordon talked about that are not necessarily fun might be piled onto your back and that's when the 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 pressure comes i found like the book compelling from the start you know in the intro to the book it says the number one priority should always be the welfare and safety of your child followed closely by ensuring they are having fun, whatever that may mean for them, as everyone's definition of fun is different. Now, I know there's a a Tennis Canada infographic that that I saw that quoted 70% of kids quit sports before they turn 13 for the primary reason that they aren't having fun. You know, I think that is an awful lot of children giving up sport and we want sport to be for life. Alex, I know you're the head of performance pathway at British Gymnastics. Is it still possible for young gymnasts? Is it still possible for young sports people to have fun on a performance pathway? Yes, would be my short answer to that. Um, but it's it's really, really nuanced. And I suppose I, I draw it back a little bit to that description I gave of, of Alistair and Johnny Brownie, right? It, it depends what you describe as, as fun. So by the time they get to the performance pathway, one of the things that is going to be definite is they get, they're going to be putting in a lot of hard work. They're going to be putting a lot of, um, a lot of hours. They're probably going to be making some call them sacrifices although i'd argue that it's choices but they're going to be making some difficult choices about what they do um now that might not sound fun to everyone i think the bit that's really key for me is that that child is choosing to do that and that that it's it's by their own choice that they want to do that and not every second of it is going to be fun i don't think we can pretend that any elite sport every second is fun but you should be fulfilled from it and should feel a sense of enjoyment and should feel a sense of achievement. So can they still have fun? Yeah, absolutely. Um, But they're probably taking it quite seriously along the way. And the other thing that we tend to see, and I think you see this across sports, we certainly see it in gymnastics, partly because they start so young, is that people tend to identify with the sport by the time they get to the performance pathway. And what I mean by that is a lot of their friendship groups will be wrapped up in the sport. Now, we'd encourage a young, rounded child to um, also engage with things outside of gymnastics. We absolutely want them to do that. But we also recognise that if they, it, it, we want to create a fun and supportive environment um, where they can communicate with a range of people, but, but mainly that they have some friends in there that they enjoy spending time with and they have great relationships and they have a great experience in a great environment. And if we can create that, then I think even if it's hard work, they're absolutely having fun along the way. Come on. And the friends is such a key part. Now, the other day on a tennis forum, uh, a question was posed by the moderator, which was, what one piece of advice would you give to tennis parents, knowing what you know now? And I said, my advice is keep things in perspective. And I actually, I used the quote from the book that I'm just going to read back to you. So, um, 
it's a quote about football, but it's one that I'm guessing you could switch to a whole host of other sports. I think back to my own son signing a Category 1 football contract at the age of nine, and I'm reminded that the chances of him playing professional football at that club were the same likelihood of me being hit by a meteor. I really think this brings to life that entering the sport in journey should not be about the dreams of professional sport. Tell us, Gordon, you know, this is your experience. Why did you choose to make that comparison so early on in the book? I think some of the challenges we face sometimes is just the, the sheer management of our expectations of, of what we're expecting to see. And, you know, I use that quote. I mean, I certainly didn't tell my son that, and I certainly haven't told my daughter that, that are both in it. But I, but I also recognise that where the adults in the process, whether that be us as parents or coaches promising the world, telling our kids they can have this and they can have that, because the reality is you can't in sport you know, and it and it opens up all these other things. You know, people say, oh, no, if you keep working hard, you'll get there in the end. You might not. Well, what a nightmare for us as, as parents and people trying to run programs because we know lots of people now who've done all the work, couldn't have done any more, and they're now lashing out at all the adults because they still haven't achieved what they set out to achieve. And I think we've got to be really, really clear that – we can't guarantee sport is incredibly messy. The development process is messy. If we knew how to bottle it up and create an Olympic gymnast tomorrow, professional footballer tomorrow, we wouldn't be sat here now. We'd be in the Bahamas selling a product in a bottle and we would be very, very wealthy. We can only do it on what we've learned, our education and make good guesses, good choices, whatever they may be, and then help support the people um, who are in those systems. And I, I just think as the adults around young people, we've got to have our expectations in the right place because how on earth can we manage the expectations of our young people if if we haven't got them in the right place uh, to start with? So I, I think it's important that that you know, that's out there because the stats don't lie, whether we think we've got the one or our child's different to any other child that's ever been. The statistics are still there across a whole host of sports. It's so true. I mean, I, I just look at, I look at tennis and what it can bring to your life. And there's so much it can bring to your life that is nothing to do with where you get to from a performance level. And, you know, I, I think it's such an incredible education being a tennis player you learn resilience you learn persistence you learn hard work like Alex was saying earlier you do across all these sports you learn how to work hard you learn how to be organized because if you're not organized you forget your shoes or your racket or whatever it might be you know these life skills are what what the sport brings yet so often they don't seem to be up front when it's talked about the benefits of what sport can bring to your life um you know, and I think like one, and again, one of the things I love about the book is there's lots of gems in like that one, but there's there's lots of gems that you can really help you and and kind of I feel educated by. And it's uh, another example from the book. You know, if we place too much emphasis on outcome goals and outcome expectations, 
being a pro, rather than process goals, it can hinder our children achieving their best. Alex, you know, from a gymnastics perspective, what would be an example of an outcome goal? And what are the sorts of process goals that gymnasts should be looking at? So from a gymnastics point of view, and we have this all the time with um, a lot of the children that would be in our performance pathway, you, you can normally say to them, what would you, you know, what do you want to achieve in your sport? And that's normally when we're talking outcome goals. Um, and most of them say they'd want to win an Olympic medal. That's a fairly standard response. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's my first, it's the first thing. In fact, it's brilliant. Like, let's aim as big as possible. Yeah. Yeah. The process comes down to how we might break that down. We might have some outcome goals on the way, by the way, as well. We might have, I want to be a British champion or, you know, or finish in the top five. They they would still fit into the outcome. And fundamentally, that comes down to control. Um, if, if we only talk in outcome, then we are wedded to what actually happened. So if we want to win something, we don't win it then we we would review that and say there was a negative outcome. Um, and if we wanted to win and we did win, then we'd review that really positively. The process allows us to dig into the how we actually got there. That'd be what I'd say. So from a gymnastics point of view, that might be the routine construction and the skills that went into it and how you would build up to those skills. Now, if we won that competition, because that was our outcome goal, we could review and go, right, well done. However, we might have actually missed one of our skills. So that would that would miss the opportunity presented to us to actually understand how we got that point. And likewise, of course, the reverse is true. We we could actually not win. But if we did a perfect routine, we had a D score with an excellent E score. So that's the difficulty and the, the actual execution. Then, yeah. then we could be really happy. Um, but you know what? There was someone else that did a better job on the day. So when we're talking about talent development, when we're talking about working with young young people children the process is so so important because it allows us to take care of the steps on the way there and that's super important because it allows us to fill in the blanks and it allows us to take successes and failures certainly work ons um on that journey so it allows us to build up to the point that actually it might be you're in the world championship final and what you're thinking about is what you've got to do and you know what the outcome takes care of itself yeah it's so true. And I think control what you can control. There's actually one of the best tennis podcasts out there by a guy called Dan Kiernan, and it's called Control the Controllables. And it's so true when it comes to process that you can, in theory, control because it's it's in your grasp. Whereas with, with outcomes, who knows who you're going to play? You know, you who knows who you're going to come up against? You know, I, I feel like, you know, sometimes there's just no getting away from outcome goals, that they're so dominant in society and in sport. You know, I remember when Ned uh, was playing a bit more football, Ned's are, he's 11 now, and he was, you know, a six, seven-year-old footballer. And one time somebody said to him after a match, did you win? No. Did you score? No. And it's the end of the conversation, you know, and, and they move on because this is what the questions are. But, you know, he's the goalkeeper. You know, he could have had from a from an out from a process point of view, he could have done his kicks brilliantly. He could have been coming for crosses. He could have done all these things. But so, I mean, it, these questions are so common. So one question for you, Mr. Gordon, should should the question, did you win, be banned? as a question aimed at junior players of any sport? 
Absolutely not, because I asked it the other week because I was away and I I didn't have the time to have a long conversation. Look, I, I I've got I'm not in this car. I've got no issue with um winning and competition. I think oh, all my years through coaching and education, I think the challenges become is how we've actually run the environments as the adults. You know, for me, winning and competition is part of part and parcel of being involved in sport. It's how we manage what that actually looks like now in terms of being careful in terms of raising our kids getting them to understand that that you know processes are, are probably more important in the long run than the outcomes the challenge we've got as parents is if that is the only type of question that we ever ask our kids then the, that is the only thing that they think we're going to value and yet when you speak to the vast majority of parents about what sport can bring, the development of, you know, commitment, resilience, persistence, patience, humility, self-organization, good decision makers, good communicators, all these traits that come on. If we don't talk about them, if we don't value them and if we don't help our children understand that it is those things that are potentially leading them to the positive outcomes they achieve then kids just won't value them. And we've missed a major trick in actually setting them up, not just to be successful in their sport, but actually hugely successful in whatever they end up going to do. So no, I wouldn't ban it. I think it's gonna, it should be there as a question. It just shouldn't be the only question and the only type of dialogue you have. Bang on, bang on. I think, yeah, I mean... You can't get away from the question, can you? Because, you know, it is a competitive thing. And I think that it's really interesting to use the word happy, clappy. I think if anything within the kind of tennis world, maybe maybe some people look at me and say, I'm a bit happy, clappy, because I do try and bring process elements to it. But, you know, I'm still interested in whether our children have won a match or lost a match. And I'm sure they're very interested in whether they've just won a match or, or, or lost a match. Um I mean, and the other, I mean, the other thing here is, of course, you know, amazing lessons can come through failure. It's certainly within adult literature, be it business, be it sport, whatever it might be, be it that classic Michael Jordan quote about how many times he missed and that that's why he became the success he was. But, you know, Alex, why is it that failure is a word which has such negative connotations in youth sport, you know? Is it possible to reframe it in, in such a way that a fear of failure becomes a thing of the past? Because I'm guessing within gymnastics, a fear of failure can really hamper performance. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I, think, I think the answer, I guess the first bit of that is kind of links back to that winning question again doesn't it because you associate failure with, with not winning so actually we need to then break it down and understand what it was we were trying to achieve slightly more as to assess whether that was a failure or not because you can not win something but have a load of successes on route so I, I think yeah. that's a key bit of reframing when we're working with young children uh, gymnastics specifically I, I'm not a gymnast by the way to start as I then so I've entered the sport from I've worked in in many different sports and um what we have in gymnastics is a bunch of incredibly, incredibly resilient children. And the reason for that is um, their everyday training is laced in probably what we might term failure. 
Um, and that's because if you're going to if you're going to develop a new skill, you're going to fail it a lot more times than you're going to be successful. in. So I actually think gymnastics does this incredibly well. Um, and I think we have some incredibly, incredibly skilled coaches throughout the country who do this incredibly well, because what they're used to doing is in building up and working through failure. And, and again, that word probably wouldn't be the one that would be used. But the reality is that's what it is. Um, so that actually not only do we work through the failure, but we build that skill up to a point whereby it's so solid and it's so repeatable that they can perform it as part of a routine under huge pressure. So like, failure is just a part of learning and it, and it absolutely has to be. And, you know, anyone, when we have really young children, I've got two young boys, um, they, that's something they, they have to learn. Uh, I've got a son at the moment, he's, he's seven, and he finds the concept of failure really difficult because he just expects to be good at things straight away and he expects to win straight away. Well, that's not how the world works, never mind sports. We have to learn through that to actually... Failure as a concept is probably one of the most important things that sport can teach a young child. Like you're going to fail. What it also teaches you is that if you work hard, then you can achieve mastery. And with that comes success. And you know what? If winning's the motivation, which let's be honest, it is for so many, we can get to a point of winning as well. So um, I, I think a failure, failure is actually the brilliant bit about sport. It's a really, really good thing to teach young kids because um, they're going to go through it. Um, and that's a part of learning that resilience. And eventually that, that's a really good thing that they can take into their everyday life. Come on. And, you know, for the for the tennis parents listening, I once spoke to a very prominent strength and conditioning coach who's worked with, you know, some of the best players in the world. And uh, I said to them, from a tennis point of view, if you believe in multi-sport, uh, approach to juniors doing lots of sports if you believe in that what three sports would you do to get people ready to be a tennis player and they said gymnastics 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 and I thought about that and I thought about it because of the core the movement the strength the um the work ethic etc but what I hadn't considered which I absolutely love from what you've just said Alex is you fail repeatedly and you learn that that's okay. You know, to, to my son, Ned, he was, he's working on, um, on hitting his, his forehand with more, with more power, more racket speed. And he failed to start with, and you know, he didn't like it. And I, I needed to explain to him that it's the only way you're going to learn. And, and I hope that that'll, that'll help him through life, you know? So yeah, the related world of gymnastics, it's, uh, it's fascinating to hear. Um, now, coming on, Gordon, I mean, I don't know if you watched it, but Yannick Sinner won his first Grand Slam at the Australian Open. And in his presentation speech, he very consciously, I think, chose to talk about his parents. And the quote from Yannick Sinner was, I wish everyone could have my parents because they always let me choose whatever I wanted to. Coming back to Alex's point earlier. Even when I was younger, I made also some other sports and they never put pressure on me. And I wish this freedom is possible for as many young kids as possible. Gordon, how big an issue is parents putting pressure on their children in junior sport? 
Well, I think it can be. I, I, I don't think it's it's certainly not everybody. I mean, we we all like a a blanket story, or we we've all got a narrative to tell that we can attach to, you know, certain quotes like that. And you see people jumping on this narrative. There, and it was the same with the bizarrely with the David Beckham documentary, wasn't it? Where everybody suddenly got stuck into dad to say that his approach was slightly archaic. Well, at the end of the day, it's how it's perceived by the child. Because did David actually see it like that? Or was David incredibly grateful that dad was like that to get him through some of the horrific moments that he ended up having to get through? And I, I always say that. I think I think the whole pressure thing is how it is perceived by the child. Yes, I think we can put too much pressure on our kids. Again, if we focus on things that we maybe can't control, maybe focus too much on outcomes. Um, if we compare our kids to other kids, which causes children, they tell us that when I work with the kids, they tell us that's a major, you know, angst of theirs. Cause you know, parents can be comparing them and there's things that the kids can't do about what somebody else is doing, or maybe not even physically or emotionally able to do what other kids are doing at that point in time. And I, I think that type of, of sort of pressure on that outcome, you know, outcome expectations is, you know, is big. So yes, I, I, I do think they can, um, but I think it's about understanding when it becomes pressure and when it becomes actually, I'm just, you know, challenging, pushing my kids, doing it in a healthy way and learning some of the things that we've already talked about. I think it's working out the balance and it's going to be different for every family. It's a great point that every child diff is different, every parent is different, and it is to a degree going to be one person's pressure is another one's encouragement almost. So, yeah, I, I do. I take the point that it's nuanced. Um, one that I, I mean, I saw recently, you know, I've been to a lot of tennis matches, a lot of football matches. I have seen parents shouting things on, which you sometimes think, well, that's not always that healthy. Um Recently, I saw one where in a tennis match and the parents shouted across to say, just relax, will you? And uh, it just wasn't really said in a relaxing manner. And it really made me think about a quote from the book, which said, children will, will rarely listen to their elders, but never fail to imitate them. You know, the child in this instance didn't relax. They looked a little bit stressed, you know, a little bit like the dad did. Alex, what what are your top tips for parents when they come and watch their their child performing in gymnastics? I feel slightly fraudulent answering this simply because my children are three and seven, and I haven't really had to do it myself. So, <laughs> oh, maybe that's a good thing, though, isn't it? Um, the first thing is it's it's understanding it's their performance and and not the parents' performance. I think that that's a really big one, and therefore whether it really matters or not. And I know that sounds, you might not expect that. Like, you know, I'm interested in performance, but does it really matter in the big scheme of things? No. Um, when we're talking about children, they're really early on in their journey. So if they have a massive failure, if they come on off every single bit of apparatus at a young age in one competition, who cares? That, that, so that would be my first start. There's understanding what's the worst thing that could happen here. Is that a real problem? No. What's your role as a parent? It's actually to support them. So 
I think if in doubt what we see when the parents are watching, this is incredibly difficult, but um, gymnastics is often quite a quiet sport anyway, so we don't kind of get the same shouting you might have experienced there anyway. But actually, watch, and if in doubt, stay pretty passive. That I mean, that that's often the best thing. And then and then have the kind of conversations that, um, you know, Gordon speaks about a lot in the book where we try and um, talk to them about, more about their experiences rather than the outcome. So um, I, I don't think there's a right way of doing it. I think that's probably the... The thing I'd say, because it does depend on that individual relationship. But the big thing I would say to the parent is try and remember the context. Like, are they in an Olympic final? Um, and if they're an Olympic final, then I imagine you'll be so nervous you can't speak. Um, and outside of that, do you know what? It's probably not so important anyway. Probably not so important anyway. Come on. And Gordon, anything to, to add on this one, you know, in terms of tips for for parents when they go to watch their children play? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, there's loads. I mean, as Alex said, Alex has got it to look forward to. So I'm looking forward to chatting to Alex over the, the coming years, as we often do about how he manages it. Look, watching your kids is highly emotive. Um, there's no doubt in that. Uh, every week, uh, you know, I may not show it, but I'm absolutely shattered after watching my two. I've lived every moment, every feeling, every interaction, uh, everything that's gone with it, because that's the reality of what you do. And Alex will tell you, it's a lovely uh, story. And I tell this in one of the webinars we do with, with the gymnastics parents. And Sarah Murray, who wrote the book with me, um, yeah. Sarah said to me one that she said, Gordon, how often do you go and watch your kids play? And I'm like, it's a bit of a stupid question. So I, I sort of said, oh, well, every weekend, Sarah, you know, I'm thinking, God, it's a bit odd. And she goes, no, how often do you watch the game? And I said, well, every weekend, I've just told you that. And she said, tell me this, what do you do when you go and watch Liverpool? And I'm thinking, oh, no, Sarah's really bright. I'm thinking I'm walking into something here. And I remember then being a little bit flippant. And I said to her, I said, oh, well, I have a few drinks and sing You'll Never Walk Alone and have a really good day out. And she said, yeah, but she said, tell me, for 90 minutes, do you watch Virgil van Dijk or do you watch the ball? And I'm thinking, I know exactly where this is going. And I said, well, I watch the ball, Sarah. And she said, do you do that when you go and watch your own children play? And I said, well, yeah. And she said, I bet you don't. She said, I bet you're there 90% of the time. You'll be watching your kid with your coach's hat on. You'll be analysing every behaviour, every movement, every tray, every mistake, everything that's going on. And then you'll be there ready to give your feedback and everything that you've seen as, a, as an expert analysis. And I sort of said to her, I said, yeah, okay, so I'll give you that. I think I gave her 80%, but she was probably more accurate. Anyway... We thought, well, it's all very well having these conversations, but how do we bring to life the this understanding that we've got to look at the bigger picture, see what else is going on, see other players, see other people competing, see the reality of the environment you're in. So we went to the Premier League to look up some stats on the telly, and I think it was Mo Salah dribbles the ball eight times and he maybe loses it four Harry Kane was scoring one in four and a half shots. Well, junior sports parents would be having kittens on those percentages. 25% success rates and 50% success rates. They'd be losing the plot. Yet we watch all these top performers and we did it across cricket and rugby as well. It was, it was fascinating. 
So I think our ability to understand what it is that we're watching, the bigger picture, the fact that, you know, perfection doesn't probably exist um, is an important starting point. And also, what do our children need from us on match day? Ultimately, we want them to perform. So when they look over our body language, what is it that we're showing to them? You know, what What messaging are we actually giving? Because ultimately, whatever we choose to do, none of us want to stitch our kids up. Yet really negative body language and shouting instruction in many cases can cause a detriment to performance than the other thing. Well, no parents deliberately trying to make their kids' performance worse. So actually, we've got to talk about these things. We've got to consider, are we doing the right thing? It's so true. And the body language one, certainly in tennis, and often you see this on when a smash goes up. So a smash goes up and all the spectators are watching going, are they going to make that? And it's easy to miss a smash. And the child misses a smash. You know, they put it into the net. They look around. And what do they see? They see a parent gasping, throwing their arms up into the air. And it doesn't make them feel any better. You know, someone was saying to me that you've got to be a good good poker face. Work on your poker face for these moments. Oh, man. I mean, another little passage from the book. It really did make me think. And it's a specific one that I think is relevant to anyone who is a sports parent is um, highly successful college athletes in the USA were questioned as to what their worst memory of sport was growing up. The number one response was the car journey home. Why do you think this is, Gordon? What would your guidance be for sporting parents on on that car journey home? Well, look, I, I, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, you send your kid out into the world. They don't want to let you down. They don't want to let coaches down. They don't want to let teammates down. They go out. They they perform. In most cases, after they've performed. They're physically, emotionally, and mentally tired. They then come back to the adults, and we've just said it's highly emotive watching your own kids, who are often physically, emotionally, and mentally tired. And in absolutely no other walk of life would we put those two human beings back together and say, do you know what, we're now going to have a really productive conversation and pick the bones out of that. Yeah, in sport, we can't wait to do it. We can't wait to start giving off feedback. And yet, we know even with the highest performers at the highest levels, there is a really sensitive period immediately after competition where athletes need time to decompress. Parents need time to go and get out of the environment, get some fresh air, get some space, have a coffee, go to all, all the things before they then go back together to try and sort of pick up the next bit and the pieces that go. And I think that it becomes that because we get back together and we fall into the trap of thinking that we have to solve every single problem there and then. And in most cases, that conversation is adult-led rather than us asking the questions that allow the kids to reflect on what's just happened for them, which is an integral part of development. It's a great answer. It's a great answer. Um, Alex, another, I mean, it's, I, I'm fascinated as reading the book as a parent, you know, genuinely. Um, I'm also interested from a coaching point of view, you know, as, as a tennis coach. Um, there's a, a sports psychologist who, who I've got a lot of time for. I've interviewed a couple of times called Callum Gowling. Callum speaks a lot about the importance of the tri-party relationship between player, parent, coach. 
How important do you think it is for coaches to follow the guidance which is outlined in the book in terms of process, not outcome, positive body language, positive messaging? I'd, I'd answer it in the sort of the same way we just spoke about parents. You get it a lot on, on certainly on the gymnastics floor. You know, let's say on the, on the high bar and they miss a catch. If if the coach is stood next to them with their head in their hands, um, that's not a great mental state for the for the gymnast to be in. What's going to help them most um, is actually that that coach has seen it a million times, <laughs> um, smiles at them, supports them to get back on and crack on. So so it is. I I think the difference we see with the coaches certainly are experienced coaches is they have seen it before and they've they've kind of tend to have that understanding of failure um that that's what that's what you get with the experience of a coach is they they've done this more and more they've got an idea of like they, they kind of know that actually coming off the bar this isn't the biggest deal um and what helps that a lot um is that they're not their child so they can be a little bit more removed from that um I think what can sometimes happen in that relationship between the, the coach and the parent is that it might seem to the parent that that coach doesn't care enough or that they're not investing quite enough time into that individual. In reality, certainly, I mean, across all sports, in, in, in gymnastics, the coaches put in hours and hours and hours of time into these gymnasts and, and they care an, an awful lot Um but they're also moderating their behaviour. So, so I think the real key thing in terms of that relationship is there is communication between that that gymnast and coach. Um, there are boundaries set within that too. That's really, really important. Um, you know, the parent needs to know when is a good time to have a conversation with the coach and, and vice versa. Um, and actually they can work together. And I think if they get that right, then the parent can actually take a lot of cues from the coach in terms of how they, they might react. You know, so they can play the... Look, if this happens, this is what you'll see me do. Um, that isn't because I don't care, but it's because we're going through a process. And so I think if that relationship is really strong, it can be really, really beneficial. But the important thing is that that relationship um, is, is built upon good communication um, and that the parent can really take the lead from the coach in that regard, because the last thing you want is mixed messages. And that might come from, you know, the actual verbal messages, but it might also be in the body language as well. That's a very good point. I mean, the, the, one of the things I, I like, the book is a brilliant book to dip into, dip out of, read the whole thing, go back into. And I've certainly found myself doing that. Um, a question for both of you, you know, maybe Gordon first. And it's, it's a, I know it's a very, very difficult one, but I just feel like you guys have got a lot of like, nuggets to share in this area but based on your experience of working with young performance athletes and what you've seen and what you've learned in your roles what would your number one top tip for sporting parents be i think you've got to enjoy it you know everybody says parenting's meant to be a selfless act i along with thousands of sports parents have decided there's got to be something in it for us as well so you've got to find your enjoyment and what that is and I think that if you get your expectations in the right place and use that journey to maximise all the opportunities that it can present to your child um, in an effective way, um, 
then yeah, just go for it and enjoy it. It it it's it's absolutely vital that you that you do that. Otherwise, it's just it just becomes it just becomes a real chore and really wearing. It's true, isn't it? I mean, I one of the things I you know we talked about it earlier about how children make incredible friends through sport and and how important that is in their kind of wanting to stay in the pathway maybe it's why they started the sport in the first place was because their friend went to this gymnastic session i've got to say one of the things i've enjoyed most about the journey that our three children are on is i've made some brilliant friends you know it's like i really have made friends who i'm sure will be friends for life regardless of of you know what our children end up doing and and i think that's the enjoyment that i've got through this journey of being a parent same same question for yourself alex a uh, number one top tip for sporting parents um i i actually the enjoyment um it's really important and i'm i'm answering this one thinking about performance and the and the things you can learn from sport but let them fail I think the number one thing parents want to do, because it's natural in you, is to prevent that at all costs, because you don't want to see a child upset. If a child has a future in performance sport, they're going to have to learn to fail, and they're going to have to learn to learn from that and progress. So I'd say let them fail. And the, the type of examples I'd give, I remember this was when I was um, doing some work with triathlon a few years ago. But um, we spoke about wanting the... Uh, the young triathletes to really learn to um, make decisions and, and dissect information themselves because that's what they're going to have to do when they're racing. And a light bulb went off with this parent. She looks at me and goes, I've been doing it all wrong. She goes, before training, I do everything for him. I pack his bag, I give him his water, and then when he gets home, I take it all, I do it all, I do everything for him because he's so busy that I just want him to be able to concentrate on what he's doing. She goes, I... I just need to stop doing that, don't I? But yeah, because all, all you're doing is meaning that there was no coping mechanism and they couldn't fail. Do you know what? If you if you rock up to training without a water bottle, it's not the end of the world, but you probably won't do it again. So there's your learning. So let them fail. Let them do those things. Don't feel that you have to do everything. You probably have to drive the car. But beyond that, everything else, they can learn and allow them to learn it. It's great advice, Alex. It really is great advice. Although if I'm blushing, I hope that uh, people can't see because uh, it's audio. <laughs> but if my wife listens to this podcast, she'll probably say, will you stop doing these things now? <laughs> oh, man, that's good advice. Really good advice. Um, a, a question that I th I'm really intrigued to hear your guys' opinions on, because I'm sure I did read something about this subject in the book, but when I was reading back, I couldn't find it. And that's multi-sport versus early specialisation. So, you know, playing a number of sports into your teenage years versus doing a specific sport and focusing on that from an early age. I know it is something that parents think about, you know, maybe even worry about if they go with early specialisation too early. Where, where are you guys on this subject of multi-sport versus early specialisation? And and Alex, you know, what, what gospel would you preach? The first thing I'd say, the, the literature is fairly solid on multi-sport. Right? So if I let's let's start there. Like good grounding in most sports will mean that kids can adapt 
to, to many sports and they're, they have an all-round athletic development. So that's, I guess that's my my party line on it. The reality is it it depends. It really depends. Um, I know I currently work in gymnastics. Well, there's a certain volume of training they're going to have to do at a young age. Um, and the consequence of that is they're probably going to do some less of, of other sports. Um, now, gymnastics are quite an all-round sport. But if you do lots and lots of gymnastics when you're young, you might struggle to go into a, a an invasion sport, a ball sport, because you might not have developed the same coordination, for example. Um, so it, it really does depend. But multi-sport is certainly good. But there are some sports which are early specialisation. Um, you can't do a whole load of sports and then take up tennis at 15, for example, and expect to it. You know, so there, there has to be a little bit of sampling. I think it's good. But also, if they love something, if they absolutely love a sport, don't stop. I, I'm, I'm not into then stopping them doing that um, because you feel that they should sample. I think it's different for each individual. Um, and you've just got to take it on face value as to what they want to do as, as you come across it, really. And that's the point, the literature, there's lots of literature with all sorts of different opinions, but I guess it comes down to, again, that each child is different and one child may want to specialise early, whereas other children might love so many different sports that they want to keep doing them. Is uh, Anything to add on this one, Gordon? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I hope what we've sort of covered in, in this whole chat is how complex these sort of, you know, not statements are, but the literature we see, what we learn, how these stories are, are shaped in the world. I mean, look, there are massive benefits to multi-sport. And in a lot of cases, now we're starting to see data that kids do a wider variety of sports when they were younger, got more chance of being elite um, than those who only ever did one. Now, that, but that doesn't apply to every single child, every single sport, every single context. The challenge is, is when people say, oh, yeah, you should get your kids to do lots of sport and this lovely utopia... I've got parents who struggle to get their kids to one sport a week, not suddenly <laughs> saying you've got to do five nights. And then you've got some, as Alex says, who you, if you are going to be good at something, this is where we've got to be careful. You have got to have some degree of specialisation. Otherwise, you're just not going to be good at it. You're just going to do loads of different sports and be very average at, uh, at all of that. You know, if if that's what you're trying to do. But again, because of the nature of that specialisation, you might not be able to maybe do quite as many because you haven't got the time in a given week. Where I am with it is, yes, that grounding can be really important. But also, I think for me, even if kids do find a passion, something they want to do, we've got to be really careful how we manage their breaks because I get it not just in gymnastics football so all we ever do is football but then some of these kids are doing football more than the professionals do it they're doing it 12 months a year because the the parents don't feel safe that it's all right for them to have six weeks off they think they're suddenly going to lose it and be miles behind so even now if somebody says to me Gordon oh well my child only likes this fine but are they having appropriate rest and breaks and doing other things then it doesn't have to be another sport to balance out you know all of that so yeah look there, there's lots to go out within that certainly great answer great answer and you know i mean i could honestly speak to you guys all day and uh but i'm not sure i mean it'd be a very long podcast but i could do it because it's brilliant chatting with you guys but we've got only got time for one more question and that is 
final question. You could go for a drink with anybody, alive or dead. Who would it be? Perhaps we should start with Alex first and then Gordon. Who would you invite? So I've given this one a bit of thought and I wanted to come up with an answer which would be slightly alternative and really cool um, and I couldn't come up with one. Um, I'm a huge rugby fan and I'm also fascinated because I'm no good at it um, with this idea of coping with pressure and therefore I, I with Johnny Wilkinson for me and it's really laced upon the 2003 World Cup win and his ability to hit a drop goal under the biggest amount of pressure that you could ever conceive. Um, and I'd love to just have a chat with him about that. And I mean, if you know anything about him, I think he's a fascinating character anyway. And and when he talks, I think people tend to listen. If, if you've never seen the speech he gave at Toulon in about, oh, probably about 2015 or so, he gave a speech I think during the halftime, I think it was the European Cup final in French, fluent French. And I was still inspired without understanding it. Um, yeah, he'd, he'd be my go to person. What a brilliant one, because he is so fascinating because he's a complex man. But he's also Absolutely. just he seems to be just completely approaches things in the right way and, and from it, from the heart. And yeah, the ability to be able to detach yourself, to focus in such a way that he made such incredible things happen is a skill that I'm sure lots of us would love to have, but also just a fascinating guest. So, yeah, come on. So, Gordon, who is joining Alex and Johnny alongside yourself at this drink? Well, well I was going to go for Alex. No, I wasn't, no, I wasn't really, because I get to do, <laughs> get to do that anyway. Um, yeah, I put... Anytime of... you want to buy me a drink, Gordon, it's fine. Yeah, Absolutely. I put a bit of thought into it, and it's probably people that know me well now will probably say, oh, well, typically you've gone for this. But I'm just, uh, I'm a little bit emotional at the moment, the fact that Jurgen Klopp's leaving Liverpool, and I was trying to work out why. Um, but actually, when I thought about it, and I thought about my own coaching career, my time in education, and what I suppose you try to do now is, I just love everything about, how inspiring he is, how he allows people to believe, to hope, to work together. But I think within that as well, I just think he is demanding but loving. Uh, I think he does both of them. And I, I think that's prevalent for a lot of the areas that we work in, that it is possible to do both. But I think he takes people with him as well. You know, we've got a world full of information. You can get all the information wherever you want to find it. But actually, are you taking anybody with you? And I, I think he takes people with him. I think he's a real leader of people. So uh, that's it for me. It's a great answer. And I love that because we've been talking about how, you know, everyone's different and what applies to one doesn't apply to another demanding but loving and I think that's what Klopp is and you see it don't you you know you see that he has very high standards no doubt in training he expects you to work hard and give everything and he won't tolerate you know other things but at the same way you get the feeling that he absolutely cares for his players as individuals and that he wants them to succeed and he and it's all team I mean what a drink that would be. I mean, you two guys plus Jürgen plus Johnny sounds to me like a winning formula. 
Um, guys, I know, you know, we're, we're just, I mean, before we go, I've got to say the book Sports Performance Parenting, it's by Gordon and it's by Sarah Murray, who Gordon uh, talked about. It's got a forward by Judy Murray um, and it's from British Gymnastics, which uh, Alex is representing today. Um, it's genuinely a brilliant read if you're a sports parent. So we'll make sure we get all the links out there so that um, people can find a copy. And uh, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for your time today, guys. It's It's been brilliant to chat. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you, Rob. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I should also say I'll put the, the links on for the Working With Parents In Sport website because there's an awful lot of resources there. So we'll make sure we do that as well, Gordon. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry this chat is coming to an end, but it must do. But yeah, thank you very yeah. much. That's all for today, but thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoyed that, please do hit the subscribe or follow button so you keep up to date with new episodes. And we look forward to welcoming you back to my tennis journey very soon.